Good morning, everybody. We're reading from Acts 11. This is on page 1105. I'm going to read up to verse 18. Thanks for bearing with me. It takes a long time to get down here from the back. It's much smaller at east. <laughs> right, Acts 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds, then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, the three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered that the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praise God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, good morning, everybody. It is a real privilege to be able to come here, uh, speak to you this morning. And by the wonders of technology, it's great now, isn't it? I can check out what's been going on uh, before and see that you are in a series thinking about conversions in Acts. And last week, Chris really powerfully, I think, unpacked some of the uh, nuggets of truth that come out of Paul, Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Today we're moving on to think about the conversion of Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And as you've seen from me recounting my own story of coming to faith, my story of coming to faith isn't as dramatic as Cornelius. There's no angels, there's no visions. And yet, as Chris reminded those of you who were here last week, there are accounts across the globe today of those who will have similarly powerful and miraculous conversions to Christ. There are stories of Muslims who have encountered Jesus in their dreams and come to faith. I was speaking a few years ago to somebody who came to faith, him and his family came to faith out of involvement in occult practices and the powerful deliverance that accompanied that. 
There are those who are healed miraculously, or their lives are instantly transformed as they leave behind an area of addiction and move on into freedom. But there are others, and perhaps some of you in this room, who are a bit more like me. Some, like my two sisters, perhaps, who even can't even pinpoint a moment when they came to faith as they grew up in a Christian family. They just know that now they follow Jesus Christ. Now, Acts is written by Luke, who also wrote Luke's Gospel, and it recounts the history of the early church. It gives us a glimpse into that initial spread of the Gospel. And so we might think that Luke wants to be a bit balanced here. You know, there are some who have dramatic conversion accounts. There are others for whom it seems slightly less dramatic. Why is it that Luke doesn't give us a kind of range of accounts, but instead seems to hone in on particular individuals? He hones in on the Apostle Paul, and Paul's conversion account is recounted three times, and hones in on the conversion of Cornelius and his family. And if we were read to read Acts chapter 10 as well as chapter 11, we would see that Cornelius' conversion account is recounted twice. The bit that was just read to us is like a summary of what was described more in real time in Acts chapter 10. So why is it that Luke focuses on these two conversions in particular that are so dramatic and that such a high number of Christians since have had very different experiences from? Well, that's a question that I want us to come back to in a little while. But first, let's just run through what is so miraculous and extraordinary in this account of Cornelius' conversion and see if that sheds any light on what the significance of this story might be. So first of all, if we were to read through Acts chapter 10, we would see that in verse chapter 3, Cornelius sees an angel. Now the word angel is actually quite common in Luke and Acts. In fact, compared to Revelation, where you get the most references to angels, there are more accounts in Luke and Acts than in any other New Testament book. And we see that angels appear at significant moments in God's salvation plan. So we know that we at Christmas, when we hear the nativity story, that we hear lots about angels. We hear of an angel appearing to Zechariah. We hear of an angel appearing to Mary. We hear of angels in all of their splendor uh, appearing to the shepherds. Also, if we read on in Luke, we see that Jesus is strengthened by an angel in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus' birth, this wonderful moment of incarnation, God made flesh, come to live amongst us. And just before Jesus' crucifixion, that moment where he would take on himself the punishment that we deserve for the things that we have done wrong, we see angels appear in both these significant moments. Moving on to the book of Acts, again we see quite a few angels appearing at different points. So we see angels particularly associated with jailbreaks, actually, as it turns out. So we see in Acts chapter 5, verse 19, their apostles are in jail because of the gospel. They've been arrested because they're preaching about Jesus. And an angel comes and releases them. So too, in Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison and an angel appears and releases him. Peter is in prison because Herod is arresting some from the church. And later on in that chapter, the angel even strikes Herod dead. So we see the angel here removing any barrier to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, we see an angel appear to Philip and directs Philip to go and spread the gospel with an Ethiopian, really significant, a non-Jew who comes to faith in Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 27, we read of Paul, who has been arrested and he's being sent off to Rome 
where he'll placed under, be placed under house arrest, but he'll still be able to preach the gospel to those who come to visit him. On the way, he gets involved in a big storm, and all of the people in the boat are really scared that they're going to die, but an angel visits Paul and reassures Paul that not only will he be saved, but everybody on the boat will be saved. So we see that angels are appearing in Luke and Acts at these significant moments in salvation history, and in Acts in particular, it is associated with the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That suggests to us that in Acts chapter 10, verse 3, when Cornelius meets with an angel, that this is going to be a significant moment in this spread of the good news of Jesus Christ across the nations. And as we read on, we see that is, in fact, what turns out to be. What is the other miracle that takes place? Well, secondly, we see that there is a vision. We see Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 10, has a vision wherein a large sheet descends from heaven, and on this sheet there are all kinds of animals, birds, and reptiles, and a voice says to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter is really shocked by this. The language is quite, it's quite strong. It's like, surely not. By no means, I couldn't possibly kill and eat. What's going on here? Why is Peter so shocked by this command to kill and eat? Well, the assumption is that these animals and reptiles are what is called unclean. So this is where we need a little bit of Old Testament knowledge, that in the Old Testament there were various food laws that were given, where certain types of animals and birds were designated clean, i.e. these are the ones that go ahead and eat. Have them at your festivals and your picnics, uh, your barbecues. You know, these, these are the ones that God has given for food. And then there are a whole load of uh, animals and birds and reptiles that were designated unclean. These are the ones you're not to eat. Now, as we'll explore in a minute, that this distinction of clean and unclean does have theological significance. These are commands from God, and they are deeply and profoundly meaningful theologically. But on another level, we can all relate, I think, to kind of various food taboos. Every single cultural context will have certain foods that people think it is good and right to eat, and others that we think are not good to eat. So, for example, one of my colleagues at Moreland spent quite a long time in Central Asia, and he was recounting recently the time he was the guest of honor at this meal and was presented with an entire goat's head for him to eat. Interesting, isn't it, how foods that in one culture are thrown away, so in British culture, the head and feet we tend to throw away, in another culture can be delicacies. And it's not even necessary that we see these things as just a matter of taste. We can either kind of assert moral value to the sorts of things that we think people should and shouldn't eat. If you can remember back to the 2013 horse meat scandal, this was evident, wasn't it, where people were buying you know, lasagnas and burgers, thinking they were just beef, when they found out that there was horse meat in there as well. There was kind of moral outrage. This was not just seen as a matter of taste, but of right and wrong. So we can, in one sense, all relate to Peter in this, but there is something deeper going on in that these are laws that are given in a particular point in Israel's history, where it was really important for them to be set apart. They'd just been enslaved in Egypt, where people had worshipped all sorts of other gods. And they were about to, in a few years, it should have been a few months, but it ended up being a few, quite a lot of years, going into the Promised Land, 
where again there were people there who worshipped other gods. People who committed detestable acts, acted in with injustice, with impurity, in ways that God really didn't like, counter to the character of God, counter to the way that God had created people to live. And at this point in Israel's history, so important that God really could send them that message that they were set apart. They were to be holy. They were to be distinct. And even today, we're aware that things like what we wear, so if you think, I don't know uh, how many of you would be local Southampton supporters, any, any in the room? I can't see any in the kit, but there's a, there's a few. You know, it could be that you'd come with all of your Southampton gear on and you would very much align yourself with that team because wearing the gear gives you a sense of identity. So too, certain foods, you might think fish and chips or a good roast dinner in kind of English culture, give us a sense of identity. And so these food laws were part of a whole series of laws that God gave that were in large part to help the Israelites, to help his people understand that they were to be different. They weren't to worship all of these other gods. They weren't to act in these unjust and impure ways. They were to be set apart. They were to have only one God. They were to only worship the creator God, the God who spoke and all things came into being, the God who had rescued and redeemed them from Egypt. Their allegiance was to be solely to him. They were to act in the character of God with the love, the justice, the mercy that he had. And so these food laws are to help them to reinforce this distinctive identity. And this, I think, helps to explain why Peter is so shocked at this voice from heaven that tells him to get up, kill, and eat the foods that he sees as being unclean. It also helps to explain why Peter associates this voice and the command that it gives, not just as being a message about food, but actually, and even more importantly, he sees it as being a message about people. That just as the food laws within Judaism had sort of separated them from the other nations, that now this voice that is telling him to, to expand the food that he eats is also telling him to expand his fellowship and is a voice that is communicating the inclusion of people of all nations, all cultural customs in the good news of Jesus. And so we see this in chapter 10, verse 28, where uh, Paul says to Cornelius, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Peter's vision is not just about food. It is about the inclusion of those from all nations in this wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. Miracle number three is the timing of these events. As you read through Acts chapter 10, I don't think you've got any sense that either Cornelius or Peter are in any way doubting the authenticity of their experiences. But if they did have any doubts, any of these doubts would have been absolutely wiped away by the miraculous timing. This blows me away when I read through this account. Cornelius meets with an angel. With great faith, he sends the messengers off straight away in order to find Peter. And as these messengers are on their way, that is the very moment when Peter has his vision. And so Peter's a little bit confused by his vision. He doesn't quite know what it means. And while he's still pondering it, you know, knock, knock, knock. Here are the people who can explain it to him. This is uh, an amazing, miraculous account, and it leaves us in no doubt that this incredible moment in salvation history 
is a moment that is orchestrated by God, that it is only he who is able to bring these things about. So we see here this miraculous account that Luke chooses to spend a lot of words on. I mean, Luke uh, is fairly concise, actually. He's covering a good you know, 30 years of the early church's history here. And he's fairly concise in how he records it. And so given that, he really is giving a lot of words to this particular conversion story. So why is it? Well, we've already got some clues, haven't we, from the miracles and the nature of those miracles as to why this account is so significant. But if we backtrack a little bit more in Acts, we again see even more of the significance for it, for Acts as a whole. You see, in Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, very much sets the scene for the rest of the book. We'll just turn there for a moment. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, I really am encouraged reading about the disciples. As we read through the disciples in Luke, we see how much they really struggle to grasp who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And even though Jesus speaks a number of times about the fact that his ministry, his mission, is going to have at its heart a sacrificial death, They really struggle to get this. And so when Jesus is killed, they're not only distraught, but they're also incredibly confused. But when Jesus is raised from the dead, they think they've got it. And so um, they think, oh, this is it now. Okay, well, there was that setback. There was that suffering. But now this is the moment when Jesus is going to fulfill all of those expectations that we have had for him. And so we see them asking this question in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They gathered around Jesus And they asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it now, Jesus, now that you've been raised? Are you now going to fulfill all those expectations that we have of you? And Jesus' answer to them was perhaps a bit unexpected. They still hadn't quite got it. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But, and this is the key verse, I think, for the rest of Acts, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus replied to them is, well, you don't know, I'm not going to tell you how long it's going to be until I return and I abolish all that is evil, all that stands up against God, all that is proud, all that is arrogant, all that is unjust. It's going to be a bit of time until I come and fully establish this glorious kingdom of God, the place where there's no more pain or suffering, where the presence of God is so tangible that it can be described as being like the sun and the moon being present amongst the people. It's going to be some time, but you're not just going to sit around twiddling your thumbs waiting for this to happen. There is a job for you to do. Through the power of the Spirit, you are to bear witness to me, Jesus says, in word and deed starting where you are in Jerusalem, but then going out, going out to Judea, going out to Samaria, so that this message of who I am and what I've done will eventually reach the furthest corners of the earth. As Acts then progresses, we see Jesus' promise increasingly fulfilled. We see in Acts 2 that there is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter is inspired to proclaim the gospel with boldness and with clarity. And many, many come to faith in Jesus Christ. They repent and they're baptized and they join the church community. We then see that as a result of persecution, the church is scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. 
And we see in Acts chapter 8 a number of Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We then see, as you looked at last week, the conversion of Saul and Saul being commissioned, given this mission to go and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, those who aren't Jews and who actually were, as Peter reveals, excluded by Jews, looked down on by Jews, not welcomed into the Jewish faith. And yet as we read on into Acts chapter 10, we see it's not actually Paul who has this privilege of uh, leading Cornelius and his family to faith, but it is Peter. And then at the end of Acts chapter 11, we see the church in Antioch begin to reach out to some other Gentiles, and other Gentiles come to faith, and all of these things culminate in Acts chapter 15 in a really significant and important moment in the church's history, which is the Jerusalem Council. But we can kind of understand it, can't we? When we've grown up in a certain way with certain beliefs, and some of those beliefs are challenged, it's really difficult really difficult for us to get our heads around. What's the truth here? And the early Christians do exactly the right thing. They seek the scriptures. They seek the wisdom of one another. They seek the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in order to work out what it is that God is saying in this new moment, this new season, this new epoch in God's salvation history. And as they search the scriptures, they realize that God's plan all along has not just been that one ethnic group would follow him. That it's not just been that his people would be formed of one particular tribe. No, all along, we see this from the promises given to Abraham onwards, God's plans has been that all of the nations, those from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, are able to come and follow Jesus and be worshippers of the one living creator God. And so this council in Acts chapter 15. Various decisions are made, and these are all to do with allowing Gentiles to become followers of Jesus without having to become Jews first. Yes, morality is important, so it's not throwing all of the Old Testament laws out of the window. It's still important to be pure, to be just, to be holy. But some of those aspects of the law that are a bit more to do with defining ethnically and culturally, well, let's not make the Gentile believers stick to them. Let's not make them be circumcised is the key issue that's a a bit of a barrier at that point. But rather, let us welcome them into the community of God's people. Through what? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's the name, the only name under heaven through which people can be saved. And as we think forward to today, we just have to, I think, stop for a moment and just marvel at the implications of this that it is as a result of this moment, this official edict that allows those who aren't Jews to come to faith in Jesus Christ without having to adopt these particular customs. This moment in the church's history is why we're here today. It is why the gospel was then spread across the nations. It is why those who aren't Jews are able to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is the reason that we can think about the UK and the heritage, the Christian heritage that we've got and the implications that that has for us today. We can think of the wide variety of ethnicities and nationalities of people who are all able to be brothers and sisters, united together despite their differences. All of these things trace themselves back to this significant moment in the early church's history. This openness that they had to re-look at the, the, the Old Testament scriptures. To believe that there was yet more that they could learn, that perhaps there were things that they'd misunderstood. To be open to the movement of the Holy Spirit, to seek God's will together and make this significant decision that has such impact for us today.
Now, this significance of Cornelius' conversion in the history of the church does, I think, explain why Luke devotes so many words to it. Cornelius, we see he is described as a God-fearing man. He is open to hearing from God. We see that Peter is an obedient servant. He's willing to obey and have his worldview transformed by Jesus Christ. But it is clear throughout this story that God is the main actor, that this is a work of God. It's his initiative. He is the one who is leading this work. And so there is a sense in which this particular conversion is extraordinary. It is unique. It is particularly miraculous and powerful. And yet there are a number of features of this particular conversion that are shared actually across the whole of Acts, and I would argue shared across the whole of church history. What are those elements that are shared? Well, those elements that are shared are the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit opening up people's eyes and hearts to receiving that good news, and then baptism. We find these elements in all the stories and acts of people coming to faith. What is this good news that is proclaimed? Well, we'll read about that in Acts chapter 10. 36 to 43. Let me just remind us of it. Peter began to speak and said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation. What good news this is. He accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know this message of God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news. What is this good news? The good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, You know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with his Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. And we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What amazing news. Jesus' ministry his death and his resurrection, how it is that belief in Jesus leads to the forgiveness of sins and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the consistent and repeated message through Acts. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. He releases people from their sins, enabling them to be in God's presence without fear, able to call him Father. He fills people with his spirit, equipping them for service. He gives people the hope of eternal life when he returns and establishes his kingdom in all its fullness. Now, my story of coming to faith, that too was a response to this good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ. It was through hearing and through understanding the significance of Jesus' work which the Spirit opened my eyes to see and understand. These are the things that enabled me to follow him. When I outlined my story at the start, I made a comment that it wasn't as dramatic as Cornelius' conversion. And in one sense, that is true. I didn't see an angel, and no one had a vision. But in another sense, I'm not sure that is quite true. Because in fact, I'd argue every conversion 
is equally dramatic. You see, the most mind-blowing miracle in Cornelius' conversion is not actually the angel. It's not the vision. The most profound miracle is that God so loves the world that even though we have rebelled against him, even though we have set ourselves up as our own kings, even though we have wreaked havoc on our own lives and the lives of people around us and even God's creation, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that everyone who believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Every conversion, whether accompanied by an instant lifestyle change or whether it is the result of growth in faith through childhood, is equally miraculous and equally astonishing. In every conversion, there is a dramatic rescue from death to life. There is a transfer of location from the sphere of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son. There is miraculous liberation from ensnarement to sin to the freedom that comes in worship. There is an incredible transformation from facing God's judgment to receiving his grace-filled embrace. So how might we respond? I just, as I come to an end, want to suggest three ways that we might respond to this. First, if we are those who have come to faith in Jesus, whether in a single instance or growing in faith through childhood, I think this passage encourages us to grasp afresh the wonder of our salvation. I confess as I was preparing this talk, whenever I preach, I always think it's really important that I hear the passage challenge me before I expect it to challenge anyone else. And I felt challenged. So easy to start taking for granted this miracle of salvation. Incredible sacrifice that Jesus, Jesus took my place. It should have been me. I should be the one paying the price for my sin. And yet Jesus did it for me, this miracle. I could become so hard-hearted to it so apathetic and indifferent. And this passage, I think, grabs us by the neck again and says, see, see what a miracle this is. See the depth and the height and the breadth and the width of God's love that he did not spare his one and only son, but gave him up for you. That you might be freed, that you might have life, that you might be cleansed. Let us not lose this wonder of salvation, this most profound of miracles. Secondly, it might be that there are those either here today or listening on the live stream who have not yet experienced this miracle of salvation. It might be that, like me, you've gone through the motions for a long time, being at church, maybe even trying to be a good person, maybe having an intellectual belief in God. But perhaps like me, as you've heard the account of Cornelius, you've realized that you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord for yourself. You've never invited him to forgive your sins, to become your Lord and your King. Well, on the one hand, becoming a Christian is the easiest thing in the world. All we have to do is say, help. I need you, Lord. I can't do this on my own. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need you to forgive me. It's not something we earn. It's not something we can aspire to. It is given to us freely as a gift. On the other hand, it can be quite difficult to become a Christian because we have to admit our need, and human pride always wants to push against that. We want to be able to earn it for ourselves. We don't want to accept that we're really that bad. We don't want to think that really it would have took Jesus' death on the cross in order for me to be forgiven. 
the easiest thing in the world, but in some ways the hardest thing in the world to humble ourselves and accept our need for God's grace. Well, if that's you, I hope that today's challenged you. I hope that God's word has spoken to you, and I'd encourage you to, to speak to Chris and one of the other leaders of the church here. Don't just put those thoughts or that feeling of the Holy Spirit burning in your heart to one side and forget about it. Speak to somebody. And it is a miracle. It is only through the Spirit that we can come to faith. So pray and ask the Lord to make the reality of the gospel known to you. And then thirdly, I hope this account of the conversion of Cornelius and his household has inspired us again with the power of the gospel and a desire to want to share it with others. We might think, you know, Cornelius is a God-fearing person. It was easy for Peter to share the gospel with him. Well, there's plenty of accounts in Acts of all sorts of different people who come to faith. And last week, just that brilliant example of Saul, who is like headlong against the persecutor of the church, the least likely person you might think who would come to faith in Jesus, and yet Ananias so brave and bold in responding to that call of the Spirit to go and minister to him. The gospel reaches out across the globe and reaches all sorts of people. My hope and prayer for myself, as well as all of us here today, is that we are inspired again by the power of the gospel and in our words and in our deeds, want to commit afresh to making Christ known. Let's uh, spend a moment in silence and I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this gift of grace. The gift of your son, Jesus Christ, not anything we could have earned. No chance of ever standing before you with our heads held high, being able to say we did it. Oh Lord, we come before you humble, recognizing again our sin, our hardness of heart, how easily we take these profound truths of the gospel for granted. Lord, we ask again for that infilling power and presence of your Holy Spirit that alerts us afresh to the wonder of our salvation. Lord, for anybody here or on the live stream who doesn't yet know the gospel of Jesus for themselves, who hasn't invited Jesus as Savior and Lord, may you come by the power of your Holy Spirit and speak. Open eyes to see, hearts to understand. And Lord, do pray that you would give us boldness and wisdom in our proclamation of Jesus to others, that you'd help us to take the opportunities that you place before us, to live in ways that give glory and honor to you. And Lord, to take those moments that we have to share Jesus with those who don't yet know him. We pray this for your glory and the spread of your gospel across the globe. In Jesus' name, amen.